Welcome to CX Stories, a podcast run by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. I am your podcast host, Natalie Pearson. Today, I'm joined by Professor Hans Pols from the Faculty of Science at the University of Sydney. Hans' research focuses on the history, sociology and anthropology of medicine. He recently published his book in English and Indonesian, called Nurturing Indonesia, Medicine and Decolonization in the Dutch East Indies. Most recently, he has been working on a major Australian Research Council project on the past, present and future of Indonesian psychiatry, which looks at mental health care in Indonesia. This project has produced, among many things, an edited volume, Jiwa Sehat Negara Kuat, which looks at the future of mental health services in Indonesia and I believe that the English version is coming soon. And that's where today's discussion comes in. But before we begin, I did want to mention to our listeners that today's podcast contains discussion about sensitive issues relating to mental illness. Hans, welcome to the SEAC Stories podcast. Thank you very much, Natalie. You've recently edited a special issue of the online publication Inside Indonesia, focusing on the current state of mental health in Indonesia. How did you come to be interested in this topic? It is actually uh, a little bit by accident. Two things. First of all, my research is mostly focused on the history of psychiatry. And guess what? My father was a psychiatrist and I grew up next to a mental hospital in the Netherlands. And in the forest around the mental hospital, I used to roam with my friends. It was a great place to play because nobody went there because they were too afraid. Now, often we bumped into patients at the mental hospital and they were actually quite nice. But this might have sparked an interest. Now, secondly, you might hear from my accent, I'm Dutch, and the family from my mother's side spent several generations in the Dutch East Indies. So I was always really, really interested and curious about Indonesia. I always wanted to go there. Now, from the Netherlands, it's too far. I did my PhD in the United States. It's also too far. But when I got a job at the University of Sydney, I thought, okay, this is my chance. So I went there and it was quite wonderful. At the same time, I already started my research on the history of colonial psychiatry in the Dutch East Indies. Because among historians of medicine, colonial psychiatry became a topic of interest, but nobody had done the Dutch East Indies for fairly obvious reasons. Now, here's the big coincidence. The former director of the oldest modern mental hospital in the Dutch East Indies and Indonesia, which opened near Bogor in 1882, had been a student of my father's. So when I was six or seven years old, I had met this man. So during that first trip, I visited that mental hospital that is still on exactly the same sites. So first, this was great for my research in the history of colonial psychiatry. And secondly, I thought, today's developments, or more recent developments, are probably far more interesting than what happened 100 years ago. I started to talk to more psychiatrists, to people working in mental health in Indonesia. And from historian, I became a futurologist. I became very interested in the future of mental health care in Indonesia. Hans, you said that people ha or researchers haven't looked at the history of psychiatry in the Dutch East Indies for obvious reasons. Can you tell us what those reasons are? Now, the most obvious is that, of course, all notes, all articles, all publications, all archival material is written in Dutch. And for many Indonesian historians very much interested in the history of their own country, 
it is very hard to get access to these Dutch sources because very few people today in Indonesia speak Dutch or read Dutch. So that's the most obvious reason. Secondly, also, is that the National Archives in The Hague, as well as the National Archives in Jakarta, are not the easiest to use. And most of the documents you get through them are government documents, official reports. And just like today, official reports don't make for the most exciting kind of thing. Yes, fair enough. Why does mental health usually get forgotten when we talk about healthcare? That's a really good question, and I don't quite know. It's not just the case in Indonesia, it's pretty much everywhere. I'm not quite sure why. There's an interesting paradox that compared to Australia, mental health in Indonesia is a severe challenge. For 270 million people, there are not even a thousand psychiatrists. Yet the people I work with are all full of energy and full of enthusiasm and dream up new programs, initiatives, training courses, and implement them. And that enthusiasm is contagious. And in particular, I want to emphasize the consumer movement. Now, the phrase consumer is not entirely appropriate in Indonesia, because many individuals with mental illness would love to be consumers of mental health care. Of all people with mental illness in Indonesia, about 10% gets some form of mental health care. That is not a lot. So most of them are not consumers, but maybe are best designated with uh, individuals with mental illness. There are movements for individuals with schizophrenia, with bipolar disorder, with postpartum depression. There are movements that encompass the whole field of mental health. They're very enthusiastic and they provide a support to people with mental illness that is absolutely essential. Medical attention is absolutely important. For some people's medication, for others psychotherapy, for some people both. But other than that, how to figure out how to lead your life Fellow patients are in the very best position. One of the things that we haven't talked about is the stigma around mental health. Is that something that we see in Indonesia as well? Very much so. All over Asia, actually, that stigma is uh, relatively high. Most people would be eager to hide if there's someone with mental illness in their family. There are well-known anecdotes of people being dropped off either at mental hospitals or at informal care institutions, the family members give false phone numbers and false addresses and then quickly leave. And therefore, they just basically want to get rid of the family member. Now, we can, of course, say, oh, this, this is so evil. Why would anyone do that? Individuals with schizophrenia can be very difficult. They can be quite violent. They hear things, they see things that nobody else sees. That, that can be quite difficult. Not all of them and not all the time. But often when either they attack individuals or put uh, houses on fire, kill livestock, the family is quite desperate and says, okay, we, we, we lock that person up in a little hut or we place one of their legs in a wooden block so they can't move. This is to prevent further violence or destruction. Many of these families, and this happens mostly in rural and remote areas, but restraint is also used in many informal care settings and sometimes in mental hospitals. But most people in rural and remote areas are not particularly aware that we're dealing here with a disease, with a mental illness, and medical attention is necessary. There's still a widespread belief in spirits, evil spirits, spells, 
So that for most family members, they are absolutely desperate. They don't know what to do. And this is why this practice, it's called PASUM in Indonesia, is still widespread. I think uh, today there are 12,000 people estimated to be in PASUM. So PASUM is this process by which mentally unwell people are restrained without their consent. And I was astonished to learn that more than 57,000 Indonesians have experienced Pasung at least once in their life. And you've just said that 12,000 people are currently incarcerated under this system. Can you tell us more about Pasung, where it came from, and whether it is state-sanctioned, in fact, or if it's something that the Indonesian government has sought to eradicate? It's officially against the law. Uh, this practice is still widespread. And about 10 years ago, 2010, a very big program was set up by the Ministry of Health. Later, the Ministry of Social Welfare joined in as well, called Indonesia Babas Pasum, or Indonesia Free from Pasum. When the program started, the number of people in Pasum was estimated to be over 18,000. So it has been quite a dramatic effect. And there's been several programs to get rid of Pasum mostly through the primary healthcare centers or the puskesmas. The first task is to find these people. And we should realize, we always think Indonesia is densely populated. Yes, if you go to Jakarta or Jogja, yes, it is uh, quite a lot of people. But Indonesia is an enormous country. There are so many rural and remote areas, especially in eastern Indonesia, there are thousands of islands, they're hard to access. So what is happening on the village level is very hard to estimate. Now, most community health centers do have health volunteers. They often go from house to house, they interview people. They are the very best ones to notice if this is going on. A lot has been learned from this initiative. First of all, what happened initially is you talk to the family, you convince them to release their family member. You bring them either to a clinic or mental hospital, you get them on the medication until they are stable. And then they are sent home. Now, that often is not enough. There needs to be follow-up from the community health centre. There needs to be education of the patient, of the family, and there needs to be a regular contact to make sure that everything is going all right. Ideally, some type of work is organised for these people, some kind of socialising, because of the stigma. Nobody wants to hang out with these people. And social isolation in Australia, Indonesia, everywhere, makes a lot of the symptoms of mental illness a lot worse. The Indonesian government, the Ministry of Health, bet on this project, Indonesia Babas Pasum Big, because it was a chance to overhaul the whole mental health care system. Because you can really only do it if you have an adequate mental health system. So there have been vast improvements. Still, many, many more improvements are needed. But things are changing. So Indonesia obviously faces many resourcing challenges, and you just highlighted one there in terms of follow-up support for people experiencing mental illness. So they get seen by the puskesmas and prescribed medication, but after that, there's not the follow-up that is needed. What are some of these resourcing challenges in the field of mental health in terms of personnel and, and government budget allocation, for example? Well, Indonesia spends about 3% of its GDP on health, and out of the health budget, 1% goes to mental health. So that is not an awful lot of money. There are about 1,000 psychiatrists, about two, 2,500 clinical psychologists, about 7,000 community mental health nurses. And these nurses 
are the most active part of reaching into the community to take care of these individuals. This is a very modest amount of people. So recently there have been a lot of programs to train these health volunteers in recognizing the symptoms of mental illness to know what they need to do if they encounter it in the field. These are big improvements. Indonesia was focused on the Millennium Goals, which initially did not include mental health, but now they do. So now it's part of the way that community health centers are evaluated is the amount of care they provide to individuals with severe and persistent forms of mental illness. Developments are ongoing, and this is also has to do with the new health insurance system, which wants to move all care, ideally, to primary care, so to these community health centers. This is a great idea, but how to provide the best form of mental health care through the Puskesmas, people are still trying to think about how this can be done best. And gosh, maybe 10 years from now, I will edit a new issue of Inside Indonesia about mental health in Indonesia to report on what has been accomplished in the last 10 years. Well, you do describe yourself as a futurologist, so that may well be the case in 10 years' time, that you are able to report about some of the achievements in overcoming these many challenges. For now, though, what role are activists playing in helping to overcome this very difficult system in supporting mental illness? They are grassroots movements. They are very good in influencing public opinion. One group is called Into the Light Indonesia. It's about suicide prevention among students, mostly. Its founder is Benny Pravira. And, well, he is photogenic. He can talk really, really well. And he's appeared on, well, what could be the Oprah of Indonesia, the Kick Andy show, several times. And this has had quite an impact. Another initiative of the same group is the way suicide was reported in the newspapers in Indonesia was just awful, very sensational, always giving the details of how individuals ended their own lives. This is wrong because the danger of copycat suicide is tremendous. So together with the Indonesian Press Council, this group has formulated press guidelines. This is how you should report on suicide. Don't blame the individual. Don't blame the parents. This has just happened in the last couple of years, and this has made coverage. There are significant improvements. It's not yet ideal, not everybody knows these guidelines, but it is an improvement. Before that, uh, suicide is a taboo topic, but it's also a topic that people don't really understand. Other things that these groups do, Bipolar Care Indonesia, for example, every year on World Bipolar Day, March 30, which is the birthday of Vincent van Gogh, a famous painter, of course, who suffered from bipolar disorder. They organize a big event, invite some well-known Indonesians. There are some art performances, there's a talk show, there are interviews, attracting quite a big crowd. These things do have a very good influence. The last group I want to mention is the Indonesian Schizophrenia Support Community, KPSE, founded by Bagus Otomo. It's the very first group that started to support individuals with schizophrenia and their carers. Their activities are covered in the media quite often, and the prejudice, the bias, or the stigma against mental illness is slowly receding. It's not quite there yet, but progress has been made. Some of the other topics that you're covering in this Inside Indonesia edition look at mental illness in relation to homeless children and 
transgender individuals and the broader issue of depression, there can be a lot of grim reading, I suppose, when it comes to looking at the provision of adequate mental health care in Indonesia. Yet you say that the mood in general is upbeat in comparison to what you witness in Australia. What cause is there for hope in Indonesia when it comes to the provision of good mental health support? Well, that's a very good question. There's a dedicated group of people from all over the world who come to Indonesia on quite a regular basis to participate in these activities. And there's a not a tremendously large group, but a significant group of people who are really dedicated to bring about change. And observing that is in itself really encouraging. There is an article about what is happening on the island of Flores, and it is mostly Catholic orders, monks and priests, who have set up most of the work there, which is really good because there is only one psychiatrist for the whole island of Flores. So more than what we see in Australia is that mental health care is, of course, the domain of mental health professionals, in Indonesia, it's becoming the business of everybody. And this is, of course, a well-known slogan, mental health is everybody's business. But you see that from all kinds of unexpected corners, people make it their business, and i.e. get to work together. That is inspiring. It certainly is inspiring. I just wanted to ask you about the number of psychiatrists in Indonesia. If Indonesia had the same number of psychiatrists per capita as Australia does, I think there'd be around 37,000 of them, but instead Indonesia has got 1,000 psychiatrists. It's a very small amount for a country with such a large population. Is it because people don't want to train as psychiatrists? Well, the problem, of course, with training psychiatrists is it's a very long process. You first need to get a medical degree, then I need to specialise. It's more than 10 years. So even though there is work for many, many more, it's a slow process. The biggest problem is that many of them work for the mental hospitals, and mental hospitals are no longer so popular in the Western world. I think in an Indonesian context, they do provide very essential services. Most of them also work on the island of Java. So in rural and remote areas, it can be very hard to visit a psychiatrist. For many people, it can take sometimes a day. If someone has schizophrenia, often a family member has to come along. So for two members of a family to take off for two days, and maybe to pay bus fares or fares on both ferries, this can be a tremendous expense. Because of the health insurance system, access to medical care is now free to everybody, which is wonderful. The biggest problem, though, you mentioned uh, the homeless children. To get your membership in health insurance, you need to have your personal ID. And, of course, homeless kids, they're not officially registered. And currently, there's all kinds of thoughts about what can be done about that. And there are dedicated programs to look at these kind of things. What is very good is this group at the Universal Indonesia called Puskapa, focusing specifically on uh, homeless children, highlighting they're the most vulnerable and we need to do something. So yes, indeed, some, some initiatives are being undertaken there. And they're also the future for Indonesia, those children. Absolutely. Hans, just one more question before we wind up. I'm interested in the role that faith plays when it comes to mental health in Indonesia? That is, again, a very good question. It's not so easy to give a quick and easy answer here. First of all, people in Indonesia are far more religious than we are. I've already mentioned the initiatives coming from the Catholic Church, especially in Eastern Indonesia. And the number of Catholics in that part of the country is also much higher. 
There are also now coming some initiatives from Pesantren, so the Islamic boarding schools. And ideally, if teachers in these Pesantren are aware of issues around mental health and can detect if something is going wrong, then early intervention can be undertaken quite easily. And I must say that thus far, the initiatives undertaken by the Catholic Church stand out. But that's not because they're very numerous, because the number of Catholics is, of course, quite modest in Indonesia. But especially on Flores, what I just happen to know a bit more about, they are doing quite beautiful work. Hans, I think you're also doing beautiful work in raising awareness about mental health in Indonesia. And I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your time and your insights with the CX Stories podcast today. Thank you very much for talking with me. And finally, if this podcast has raised concerns for you, you can contact Lifeline on 131114 if you're based in Australia, or of course, your local general practitioner. Thanks again, Hans. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.